Welcome to Winning Uglier with Brad Gilbert. What up, Buck? So nice to be back in Malibu after 17 days in Bristol. I think if I was there any longer or I... I was in that cold weather where it wasn't above 30 degrees, mind you, the entire time I was there. I think that the birds got it right. Fly south for the winter. And you know what I had to get adapt in doing is the ice scraper, you know, scraping your windshield so like you can see your car like when you're coming early in the morning or remember like to bring it into your hotel room so you don't have to open up the door and then all the snow falls in your car and then you're all a mess. But it was a learning experience, but I have a lot of appreciation for people that actually do work the graveyard shift. That's a tough go. Yeah, it's definitely something us uh, Californians aren't used to is the uh, the ice scraper on the car in the morning. Um, and just for people that don't know, I think a lot of people uh, you know, are like surprised to hear that the ESPN headquarters is in Bristol, Connecticut, kind of, a about what, two hours outside of New York. Yeah. I think it's like equal distance between Boston and New York. And it was started there in 1979 and it, you know, it's massively expanded to like two different campuses. It's a, it's amazing place. Yeah. But the location has not, not changed. Uh, Same spot. Just, just grew. Yeah. I mean, I, and I wasn't, with you in the cold in Connecticut, I was working it from home, but I, I was I was with you on the night shift at least, and yeah, I have a lot of uh, empathy now for people that have to do that all the time. I mean, yeah, just a whole you know that was a, that was a tricky process reorienting the body clock, but you know we got a we I think we got a newfound appreciation from usually going down to Australia every year the uh, the dedication that fans of of pro tennis in the U.S. have staying up all night properly to watch the tennis. I always say sleep is overrated. But when I come back from Australia, I always feel like I have the worst jet lag when I come back home from Australia to California than anywhere I go. But now I feel like three days on coming back from Bristol, you know, sometimes when I would come back at nine in the morning, I didn't know if I I should drink a beer or drink coffee or try to go to sleep. I mean, but now I feel like I have the same jet lag. It's kind of a funny thing that your clock is all messed up and it's like, okay, go to sleep. No, not if, but I'm starting to come out of it now. Finally hitting some balls. Uh, I, I always call Yahtzee uh, when you like to say sleep is for the week because I got to <laughs> let everyone know you like napping d- during the middle of the day uh, about as much as anybody. So I, I feel like your, I like your sleep, 45 sleep minutes. is for the week comes with a napping disclaimer. <laughs> okay. But uh, beyond, you know, calling the matches, I, I happen to, to be get called upon to do this one show called Daily Wager and make your picks. And you know, if you make your picks and you're wrong, everybody will, you know, let you know about it. I, I happened to go, I think I did like f- maybe five or six appearances. I went 15 and one and I got my last nine in a row, right? So I was feeling pretty good about that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's impressive. It's, I mean, when you're not just trying to pick a match correctly, but you're trying to, you know, go, go, you know, correctly above what the odds makers are already setting, which is, you know, the, the, the chips are stacked a little bit against you is, uh, that, that is impressive. Yeah, uh, and every once in a while I was and you've feeling... Let, and you've let me know about it. Oh, yeah, sure. and every once in a while I was feeling confident. I'd say, go three, four units on that one, on games or sets, on different things. But Yeah, yeah, just to give an example, it'd be like you have to pick Serena to win in straight sets, or you'd have to pick an over-under on 
games lost for an opponent, yeah. things like that. They would pick them stuff that was on the board, and then I would discuss yeah. them. Yeah, but it was never just straight up picking a match. It was always a little bit more complicated um, than that. Every once in a while, it was like, especially if, if somebody got really good odds. But it was more about the, the the props that you could find something that was to your advantage. Well, you you liked Djokovic in the final just because it, he was virtually even money to win the match, and uh, you know because you know Medvedev had had so much you know good form coming in, and I think a lot of people were were riding the Medvedev bandwagon. But I, I you know, in hindsight. Good call. I, good call to go with the guy that's I never f- lost there in the finals. I figure that you know between Rafa and Joker, they were twenty-one and zero before that final. So I'm thinking that's a pretty good reason, and I'm getting even money. So I'm going go Joker. He was only minus one and a half games. I figure if he wins, he's going to cover that. And I said definitely worth the flyer. You were getting like six to seven to one. Go on Joker in straight sets. I mean, usually once he gets to those rounds down there in Australia, look out. Look out, indeed. Yeah. Well, I, you know what? Some interesting observations from Australia. I saw a few things that I'd like to hit upon today. And one of them I call being adaptable to make unexpected adjustments in your game. And one of the adjustments I saw in the final from Novak Djokovic is not a usual tactic from him. But I felt like it was absolutely crucial to his opponent who was uncomfortable with that. And it takes, um, takes me back to a story that I, we, we told pretty early on in the podcast when I said when Andre was playing uh, Kuchera, had lots of trouble with him, and I said, Andre, play down the middle. And he's like, you know, that's not a usual tactic for him. And he was like, All right, you know, he's looking at me with a grain of salt. And finally, he plays down the middle to Kuchera, 5-0 up, and... He's disheveled because the guy can't put a ball in court. Then he starts hitting it, and the next thing you know, it's 5-3. So I've always felt like Medvedev is one of those guys that runs unbelievable, and he plays out of the corners. Amazing. But he doesn't really like to initiate the offense. And I felt like till about 5-all in that first set, Novak was making his usual push to kind of go through him and move him. And all of a sudden, I felt like from five all on till the middle of the second set, he pulled back and he played a lot of balls down the middle. And the next thing you know, Medvedev started forcing and he started making some mistakes and he started coming unglued, smashed a stick and he couldn't recover. And I actually felt like maybe... There was a blueprint there for other players to watch and that make Medvedev be the aggressor from the center of court. His footwork is so great when he's moving, but maybe not when he's not moving and he has to initiate first. Yeah, you you were very impressed with Djokovic's ability to sort of shift mid-match and, and play more balls down the middle against Medvedev, which, you know, he... He is such a good mover, you know, laterally, side to side, and he's six six, and he has the great wingspan. But yeah, you 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 did notice that he just doesn't seem quite as comfortable playing those balls from down the middle of the court, and even his footwork, which is so good when he's on the move, is a little bit sloppier, relatively speaking. You know, when that ball, when those balls are down the middle of the court. I mean, I was wondering, you know, for me, was it so much that this was a an overt? tactical decision by Djokovic 
Or did he kind of see that Medvedev was already kind of cracking under the pressure and was just like, I'm going to make this guy, you know, play as many balls as possible, you know, because he was sort of unraveling. And so I'm just wondering if, you know, what, what your thought was, you know, if, if it was an overt tactical decision just to play down the middle or if it was more about, okay, I'm just going to make a lot of balls and let this guy come it's, apart. It's a really good question. There's there's some players you cannot hit the ball down the middle of the court to ever and feel feel like, okay, you're okay. Like you don't want to just lay the ball down the middle of the court to Serena. You never want to lay the middle of the ball to Rafa and Fed. Andre was another one. He's going to bury you. But there are quite a few players you've heard me say on TV wow, there's a lot of safety and hitting the ball straight down the middle of the court. And the next thing you know, not only are they not hurting you, they're actually giving. I've seen Borna Chorich, you know, I've called a few of his matches and he's one of those guys too that you get him, you know, outside, you know, near the doubles alley and he's flying around the court. But then all of a sudden you play down the middle to his forehand and the next thing you know, he's not sure what he wants to do and he starts giving and there's quite a few players like that. So I do think sometimes when you try to go through an opponent, you can hit a wall mentally and physically because, man, I'm, I'm, I'm hitting big shots and I'm not making progress. Not only am I not making progress, I'm being hurt on redirects with their speed. So, and then sometimes it's like when you pull back, just lay a few shots back to them. Maybe they lay one back and then bang, you rip one, and then they're like really surprised because you pulled back. And sometimes when you get one speed, it's easier to defend against. So I think the fact that Joker, who pulled back, started playing some balls down the middle, some slices down the middle, Medvedev was not ready for that tactic. And sometimes players forget about at all levels that let's say my opponent doesn't like high balls but that's not my game. But you know what though? Have it in the back of your mind. If things are, let's hit him a few high balls, see what happens. My opponent doesn't like little short slices. Just because it's not something that's maybe part of your game, but if you feel like there's some avenue of your opponent's game that's susceptible to something, always keep that in mind and be adaptable and flexible to make that change. It's like a boxer all of a sudden switching to southpaw when that's not his thing, but maybe his opponent can't fight against that. I Yeah, I totally agree. I think, you know, it, it depends quite a lot on how the match is going, that you're, that you're playing for people back home. I mean, I think it's good to go into a match, you know, knowing these are my strengths and this is what I want to, want to do out there uh, in an ideal situation. And, and if that's working you know, by you, you know, quote unquote, playing your game, then by all means stick with it. But I think it, it tends to be that, you know, matches that are competitive, you, they don't just follow one clear trajectory the whole way through. Matches have almost always ups and downs. And I think in, you know, when when maybe playing your own game starts to, to falter, that's when it's, it's good to have that sort of pre-planned strategy uh, of what you can do tactically that that makes your opponent uncomfortable as opposed to just what's what's you know my best attribute out there. So Joker had lost 3 of 4 to Medvedev, lost to him easy at London. So maybe it's one of those things that he figured out or his team figured out, but 
let's save it. Let's save it for the right opportunity that we really want to use it. Um, I think it's it's really important that you have something like that. I, I remember talking tactics with Andre. You know, my game was always geared, Buck, to finding an opponent's weakness. And then if I can find an opponent's weakness, I'm like, I'm going to go there all day long. Andre sometimes want to know, forget this freaking weakness. Tell me what the guy's strength is first. And I want to go through his strength first to see if I can break down his game. Like for me, I, I wasn't capable of doing that. My game was more geared, you know, maybe you go to the strength to get to the weakness, but not about trying to go through it to really break this game down and then open up other avenues. But I do think that there are a lot of players, especially at four five level, junior level, club player, that there's a part of their game that this, that's susceptible to something. But maybe your tactic isn't perfect for that, but remember that. Because if things aren't going well, you're down 4-1, or you're, it's, you know, all of a sudden four all in the third, you, you remember it like, you know what? This guy doesn't like low to the backhand. And then you go to it and see what, what happens. I think there's a there's a beauty in when when a match isn't going your way too. Like for me, oftentimes, especially when I started like just missing too much, too many unforced errors, I, I really get in my own head about my strokes and start, you know, thinking what's off, what's what's causing me to miss my forehand, what's what's causing me to you know, be, be too tight on my backhand. And it, but in the end, that would only kind of create a little bit of a vacuum. And I would just be in a, in a worse mental position than when I started sort of self-analyzing my own game. And I think what what is just way better to do instead at that point is to say, forget thinking about my own game. Let's just look across the net. Let's, or focus on my feet, things like more, more external things you know, especially looking across the net at your opponent to, to just get out of your own head. Because uh, at least for me, basically once, once you're mid-match, making adjustments to your strokes is, is too late. See, it's not, it's not going to work well. I know, I know you didn't. And no, no, but I was saying is I never worried about my strokes, but I was one of those people three, four games in. I could be honest and say, shit, this this strategy today that I thought was going to work is not working. Yeah, it, but it's it's such a common tendency for your, your average player to to think too much about your own strokes and your own shots while you're playing. And, and the, the kind of hard truth is you're probably not going to be able to make some big adjustment in the way you hit the ball mid-match. That's but gonna, you can strategy. But you, you can, can totally, that's my point, you can totally make a big strategical decision. I mean, the, the, the bigger... Technical changes, those kind of adjustments, they got to happen, you know, over a long period of time on the practice court. But once you're out there, you know, maybe the best thing is to just get out of your own head about about your own shots. You know, know what you want to know what, you know, your strengths are. But beyond that, look across the net. Yeah. I mean, so in that match, Joker was up 3-0. And then to 5-all, it started to feel like, okay... Medvedev is starting to take control of this match, kind of like what he's done in three of the last four. Joker is being the aggressor, and, and Medvedev is using, you know, his pace, you know, gliding around the court and doing his thing. But that's when I noticed the little bit of the tactical change of pulling back, slices, some down the middles. And next thing you know, about 23 minutes later, th that match was basically, 
in a world of trouble, and you could see that that, that match was going to go. And nonetheless, I, I, I am a, pretty disappointed in the performance that Medvedev put out there. I mean, I'll just, I'll just say it. I'm pretty disappointed considering how good the guy's form was coming into the match. I mean, he'd won 20 straight matches, 12 straight against top 10 opponents. The guy just is, was as on fire as you could be. And essentially, you know, he had gotten back into that first set. It was a really tight five all first 10 games, a lot of long rallies in the second, really within a couple minutes, really of things not going his way. He essentially hit the panic button and started, you know, talking to himself after every point, you know, and I think, I think, I think even, even, even Patrick McEnroe said it was, you know, junior tennis like behavior, which is, I don't think an unfair thing to say of what he was doing. Well, let's, let's go back like four rounds, third round. He was becoming unglued in the same way against Krajanovic and he sent his coach to the penalty or the coach took a self penalty box himself and yeah, left I was the match. Say, I, I, he didn't send his coach. That was a decision his coach made to leave the court because he thought it was going to help him calm down. And it actually did in that okay, match. Okay, so now all of a sudden the same thing happened. And I think that's why we call it unexpected tactical changes. I don't think they were expecting and ready for Novak to do that. Just like when Andre hit five games in a row to Kuchera, straight down the middle cheese. And then Andre got so mad at me, he said, this bullshit is working. And it was like he was up 5-0 in 11 minutes, but he didn't feel like it was gratifying to do it. Like, for me, that's like the ultimate. Um, so I, I always feel like keep something in mind that, like, if you've seen or know that, wow, this player doesn't like high balls to the backhand, or this player has a little trouble if you do this. So... Maybe that's not the start or the basis of your game going to the start of it. But believe me, when things are starting to go, remember and have that in your game plan. Have it in your bag somewhere. I think I think that's a good ending thought on, on that, you know, on the Djokovic sort of adjustment conversation. And we wanted to talk a little bit about Naomi Osaka, too, and how, you know, she came off the canvas and, and saved two match points to win, a, was it a fourth round match against Muguruza? Yeah, the highest quality match of the tournament. Yeah, great match. I, th- I think even after she saved the two match points in that one, I think she ended the match with the last 22 points, no unforced errors. She just completely lifted her game and basically, you know, a, a little bit like Djokovic, once she gets in the latter stages of the majors, I mean, her career is much younger, but she's been, you know, it's been one-way traffic in terms of her rolling opponents. First of all, I've never seen this before in the history of tennis for a young player. She has seven titles. Four of them are slams. Three of them are WTA. So she's got more slams than WTAs. And one of those is Indian Wells, yeah. too, which is another huge one. So, um, so fast um, f- uh, backtrack two years ago. I'm calling, they said, BG, go, go do the end of this match b- b- because it was like we were going to start at one and it was coming on j- as we were coming on. She was down, Osaka, a set, 4-1, 15-40, five points from the exit against Shui, but got through that. So the thing that I've noticed for her when she gets through a jam, some players can talk themselves easily at all levels into I'm playing so bad or the negativities of getting through a match. And I feel like when you get through a match like that, I call it house money. 
Now it's time to relax and let your game fly because you were out of there. And Naomi seems to do an amazing job of when she gets through a match like that, of all of a sudden relaxing and playing her game. And then she seems to find a, a, like a really calm space. So I feel like sometimes you can overplay. You can just think that euphorically, okay, I can't lose. You can lose. And then you can undercook it. So that, but I do think... And you're saying this is for post-saving match points yes. specifically or, or really yeah. coming coming off, off of a being down a, a lot a in the set match. set 5-1, yeah. some, some huge comeback. First of all, you know, there's no guarantees tomorrow you're going to win. But I do feel like having a loose attitude and being somewhat a little bit more aggressive than normal is a good approach because you're still in it. I, and we, were, we were talking about this a little bit earlier. And see, for me, I think that just sort of comes naturally once you do say, like save match points, especially is it just tends, you just tend to be freed up and, and play looser. You think it's still something that, you know, she is consciously focusing on and, and especially good at, but I mean, and I don't necessarily disagree with you, but I, I do think it's, it's sort of the natural tendency for all players once you're sort of given that second chance to, to loosen up and, and play, you know, freer. I take myself. You know, I'm a dinosaur. Like, if I would have got through a match like that, if anything, I'd probably be more conservative because I was thinking, you know, I was lucky to get through and I better be more of a pusher. I better be more conservative to see if I can get off to a better start. Opposed to like if I, you know, as a coach and where I am now and understand it's like, okay, that's a great opportunity to relax, be more aggressive off my forehand, maybe take some more risks off my serve because, you know what, I, I was done with this tournament. Now, you, you know, sometimes when you just have a little freedom and a little looseness, shots start falling a little more. And then sort of last Aussie Open loose end was a, a quote from Medvedev. And but this is a quote you hear all the time from all kinds of players that are sort of the the underdog in big matches, which which was him saying that he had nothing to lose going into the final. And I, I do want to give some context because I, you were all about all over him for you know he shouldn't have said that he had nothing to lose in the same bigger statement he had in this press conference. He did say, of course, there's going to be pressure. There, there's always pressure for me to to win when when I'm when I'm in a big match, you know, whether I'm the underdog or not. But he did he did end the statement with saying I, I have nothing to lose. So this is a all time winning ugly, like pet peeve for me. That a lot of people say whether or not it's juniors, it's I've got nothing to lose. You always got something to lose. And you've always got something to gain. Do do you do you really think he thinks that though, or is that just a deflection? It's a deflection. A, a lot of people do it and then but in some sense, Buck, it's an excuse that in case you lose, or if I do lose, I, you know, they were better than me. Okay? That, that's fine. But I, I would feel like just don't say it. Don't say it. Don't put that, you, you know, I'm not hearing Fed or Rafa say I got nothing to lose. How about... Or Serena or, you know, I got nothing to lose. How about Naomi said nobody remembers the runners up? Oh, that was kind of the, the antithesis yeah. of that quote. Oh, it, it, amazing. I mean, and I said that on TV. It's like, Killer man, instinct, right? Yeah, there. that's Fed-like. Yeah. And then she says, you know, I want my name engraved on the trophy. So maybe that's a little too confident for most people. 
but that's better, a lot better than saying I got nothing to lose. And I, for me, I always feel like as a coach and as a player, I never think about the gravitas of what you're going to win or what's possible. I like to think about tactics and what you can try and, and work and accomplish. Um, so you, you just recommend for the player to not even, not even take the bait, not even, not even go there mentally. A hundred percent. So if you're a four Oh and you're playing up against four five, it's a big ass today, but you know what? I think her backhand is vulnerable or his forehand is vulnerable. It should be more about what the potential is that what your strengths can match up against this player opposed to like, I got nothing to lose. And you know, if I get beat bad, it doesn't matter. I think I think it's a good way too of um of like normalizing a match that that otherwise might feel like it has a bit more gravity than an average match like normalizing let's say uh, even you know for any level a, a, a final or you're playing a big rival compared to you know a, a a first round or you know something you know that's a bit more you know I don't know just just not not up there in terms of meeting for you and, and I and I think but. You want you want to try to normalize every match as much much as possible and go about every match the same way as much as possible. So the reason why I, I kind of think about it like this is that sometimes when you feel like you have nothing to lose, that this opponent is too good, or you need to redline, you need to do something too special to potentially beat this person. But sometimes a player that is above you can play down, can struggle. All of a sudden, it's like. You know, they're playing this person, they should beat easy. So there's always that little pressure. So that that's why I kind of just always like to think about it in a tactical sense and deal with that afterwards. And then if somebody thumped you, you actually played okay and you lost 6-2, 6-2. You know, that, that's when you can say, you know, I gave it my best shot. They, they just were too good today. But it's more of a reflection after but there was things to learn and things that maybe I could try next time. But I don't like to kind of put that thought, you know, especially out there in the media or to my opponent that, you know, I got nothing to lose. That usually is a sign that we're going to get, we're going we're gonna to be in trouble. You, yeah, I, I, I do think that the, uh, the signs don't point in the right direction when you have a player saying that. I mean... I, I agree. It can it, it's probably just thought of as a as more of a self deflection tactic, but I agree. It's why even why even go there? You know why not just treat you know talk about the X's and O's and treat it like another match. Yeah, and, and then you can be honest that like listen, I got crushed by Lendo a bunch of times, and I felt like I played okay, and and it's one of the hardest pills to swallow that like shoot I played okay and I got B four and two or you know six two six, but you know what though. You go back to the drawing board and say, what can I try next time? But I always felt like if I say I got nothing to lose or I'm going to lose, <laughs> it's like some people that, like they already tell, I'm going to lose, so I might as well have fun. It, 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 it would be hard for my brain to compute that. I, I almost think the situation is when people say those kind of things, it's usually a sign to me that they actually want it even more as opposed to like interesting as opposed to that 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 they're trying to take pressure off of themselves i actually think it's it's really almost a tell that you really want this match and and you're having to play you know sort of sort of mind games with yourself to 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 
sort of get yourself to calm down. It, you know, so I, I don't know. To me, a it's a self-deprecating bit, a little bit. To me, it's a, it's a bit of a tell on that side that, that, you know, obviously it could, it could go either way, but a lot of the time I think that's, it's sort of a, a pressure relief, uh, mechanism when, when people want it very badly. The one thing that you can always control, I've always said this and you've heard me say this many times, it's a winning ugly for me once again, is sometimes your opponent is too good and they have one of those days. You know, I feel like as a tennis player, there's about five times a year you can beat anybody. There's about five times a year you're going to lose to anybody. The rest is what you figure out. Um, and that that's what it's all about. And the one thing for me is you can control as you're competing. So you just compete. So that's my tell is just to compete and not say that, you know, got nothing to lose. And sort of to, to bring this around, we got, we have a question and it's very much on on the uh, unexpected adjustments side of things. And it's from Jim L who uh, he wants to get your take on a U.S. Open semifinal from 2016 between Djokovic and Monfils. And oh, wow. I remember it was a million degrees. So I didn't even remember that part, that it was really million hot. million degrees. I remember the match very well. And Monfils started tanking the first five games of the exactly. match. Exactly. It was, was bizarre. Exactly. So basically, I would say Monfils came into that match pretty much in the best form of his entire career. I mean, he'd been playing unbelievable all tournament, I think maybe barely dropped a set, you know, was playing aggressive, was playing the way that I think a lot of people had sort of been pushing for him to and wanting him to play his entire career. But then he has that, I think, terrible, maybe now it's like 017 head-to-head against Djokovic. It's funny, as I, I would have never expected in the history of the world asked a question about this match. I happen to be sitting courtside for this match. It seriously was a million degrees. And but, it was but, the most unexplainable tactics yeah so he so jim just wants to know at the same time monfils basically started you know pushing i would say it was almost like a semi-tanking no he was tanking he he was semi-tanking remember he was like on the service line he let points go but but in a way it actually kind of was working for a little bit he was winning games off of djokovic doing this after he got off to a 5-0 start so jim's sort of wondering Actually, sometimes, especially maybe in a situation where someone has such a bad head-to-head against someone, why you don't see someone maybe trying to throw out the kitchen sink more often? And and is he? He was. He's asking if there's almost a, a gentleman's agreement or a a player's agreement to to not do this sort of thing more often. Okay, it's a fascinating question. So that match was five zero, and it was almost like, what is going on with Monfils? Why is he tanking? What I mean, what what the hell is happening? But then somehow, like nine minutes later, bizarrely, it was 5-3 and Joker was serving 15-40 because he thought he was going to quit and he had no idea. So he is right in that unpredictability when somebody has owned you. Obviously, you're a decent enough player to play somebody 15 times, uh, but you can't beat them. But this was one of the most strange tactics I've ever seen. And it was a million degrees, but he's, he just, I, I didn't know what the end game of it was. Yeah, but it's not like it was, you know, 
deep in a third or fourth set. I mean, they had just stepped on the court for about 20 minutes, so I know it was really no, hot. No, it was in the first game he started like... So I'm just saying it's probably less to do with the heat being a factor. I've seen guys act absolutely dead in the first game, mentally and physically. Um, but this one, like you said, Mofis came in, but it was like, okay, I'm going to play dead. You know, I was like, you know, an animal, like sometimes is worried about it. like somebody is playing dead. You know, they're not sure they don't, they won't attack. So it, it definitely caught uh, Djokovic off guard. And then maybe had 5-3 when he was pulling out of it. Maybe that was the time to, to let his game fly. Who knows? But you're right. It is an interesting tactic that when somebody owns you and you, you play them every single week or you do something, it is one of those things that like, uh-oh, all hands on deck. Let's go for something different. I mean, yeah. yeah. I think the one thing for that was it, it, it totally surprised Novak for a while but then I think he stuck with it too long you know and then it was yeah it then it became you know again you know a totally over-the-top thing to do but there was a few games where it was working and talk about making an unexpected adjustment I could have given you a hundred guesses everything and I would have never have expected that I was going to get asked a question about that one. So that's the greatness of people asking questions. And these are my observations from Melbourne. It was fun. And I I like to still, you know, deep at heart, think about tactics and unusual tactics and how it can help you at home to advance your game. I, and I actually like these going back, like call it, you know, we don't have the tape up, but it's sort of like going to the tape on some of these old, you know, notable matches that, you know, for a variety of reasons. I know we talked about the first time Andre and, and Fed played in Basel way back in the day, too. It's kind of kind of fun to revisit some old matches. Uh, so, no, thank, thanks for the question, Jim. I also wanted to give a shout-out to Michael in Illinois, who's a young fan that, that loves listening to the podcast. So thanks thanks so much for listening, Michael, and, and, and hopefully you're, you're still liking the uh, – the podcast and, and liking all the strategy we're talking about and hopefully it's helping your game. It hit the courts this week. I'm back so I'm, I'm going to be hitting on the wall testing out a couple of new sticks but trying to find my game like everybody else. Oh yeah, yeah, you're a little bit disheveled about, about the new stick right now. Yeah, because it's hurting my elbow but I got to tinker with it so I'm just like everybody else. I battle. Got to battle. Got to battle.